At Joyful Sex Education, we believe that the pleasure principle doesn't belong to Sigmund Freud anymore. It is 2021, and the world is shifting around us. The power of pleasure belongs to the people, all the people. The only question is, what are we going to do with it? Well, that is what we will discover here on the Pleasure Principle Podcast. We'll interview experts, dig into research, and discover how holistic sex education fuels social change. So, get ready. Don't flinch. This is part two of a two-part interview. So, if you haven't listened to the first section, be sure to go back and listen to that as well. Now, after the introduction here, Dr. Boatman's interview picks up at about 2 minutes and 30 seconds with the discussion about how important it is to have a genuine partnership or alliance with your caregivers. Thank you for joining us on The Pleasure Principle. Today, we're talking about how cancer affects our sexuality and how the medical community can help us deal with the challenges brought on by the course of the disease as well as the treatments. I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Beth Boatman today. She completed her PhD in family therapy at Texas Woman's University with a primary research focus in adolescent and young adult oncology, medical family therapy, and sexual relationship health. The title of her dissertation is Developmentally Appropriate Sexual Health Conversations with Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Patients. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Texas and a certified sexuality educator slash supervisor with ASECT. For the past 10 years, she has been providing sexual health education and presentations aimed at enhancing the health and wellness of her community. Her most recent adventure is being a new mama. Welcome, Dr. Boatman. Hello, it's wonderful to be with you. Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge that this month's topic is really pretty intense. Um, it covers not one, but two kind of triggering topics all rolled into one. Cancer forces us to consider our mortality, and sex brings us face to face with our erotophobia. So Dr. Boatman, I wanna thank you for your brave work that helps folks process these two frightening yet fundamental issues. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've never really heard it put that way. That was, that was beautiful, thanks. Yeah, uh, also I wanted to mention that there is something really important. So when we talk about um, mental health work, so having a counselor, psychologist, or therapist, there's the therapeutic alliance, right? So it's really hard to find a counselor or therapist that's a good fit for you. Um, but it's really, really important. And we know that the therapeutic alliance, having a good relationship with your therapist, is one of the things that helps with therapeutic outcomes. So if you have a good relationship with your therapist, the therapy is more likely to work for you, right? Um, and having a good relationship with your therapist is is you're comfortable, you don't feel like you're holding anything back, right? You're not really keeping any secrets. You don't feel like you're going to be judged. But at the same time, the therapist or counselor is will challenge you a little bit, will push a little bit, right? Or you can talk back and forth. It's, it's not being friends with them. So I want to clarify that. Um, your counselor or therapist shouldn't be your friend because that is a, a one-way relationship. 
Um, they can be a friendly person, right? They're a friendly person and it can feel really good to go and talk to them. Um, but they're not somebody who's going to share their own personal stuff with you too. So there's, there's kind of a nice little, should be a nice little balance there of what a therapeutic alliance looks like. And I kind of think that maybe there's a, uh, like a medical alliance that you should have with your doctors too, that you should feel comfortable walking in and telling them things. Um, but like I said, that's easier said than done because there's insurance and who is taking new patients and it can be challenging. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. That's, that's exactly it. And that's what, yeah, that's what I'm really excited about your work. Like I remember reading your paper and at some point, you know, you talk about how medical providers are aware that this information around, you know, broad sexual challenges, you know, for, for oncology patients is, is a thing. It's important. They need to address it. And they're all like, uh, but I don't really. And so to me, it, I kind of got this image of like a car that does has a spark plug. That's not quite sparking. Like they, they know that they're like trying, trying, trying to get that started. And I feel like your work is like that spark that can help you know, get that engine going and get that move, get that information flowing for people. So I hope so. That um, would be, that would be really cool if it was one of the sparks. Yeah. One of the sparks. Yeah. I mean, it takes lots and lots of sparks. Can you talk about how you begin to address the, so we've been talking about the medical kind of fam, uh, the medical dynamics, like the, um, what do you, the patient provider alliance, you know, we've been talking about that and how to, how to address that in, in this context, but can you talk about how you begin to address the family system dynamics when you're working with, uh, cancer patients? That's such a good question. Um, especially when you're working with adolescents and the, the younger of the young adults, you're likely going to have, or you need to have primary caregivers in the room to help make decisions um, and sign paperwork and all that stuff, give consent, right? So you want the adolescent to give you assent, which is basically their permission. And then you get medical consent from the primary caregivers. I can't, I can't even fathom what it would be like to have my child diagnosed with cancer, right? I can't even begin to fathom that. But I think that working with the family system is the most important thing like having parents in the room can be really really helpful and a giant strength yes sometimes sometimes as a provider working with this population you need the parents to leave right because they're an adolescent and they're they're not going to tell you everything that you need to know with their parents there because they deserve their privacy right but having parents in the room can be challenging because in and of its in and of itself they're hearing news that you would never want to hear and so i think first and foremost providing a space so as a mental health practitioner right i can come in and provide a space of like compassion and empathy and just give them some time and a moment to take a breath and tell them that it's okay to be angry and it's okay to feel really sad and it's okay not to know. And of course they're going to be overwhelmed. And 
as a, as a family therapist, I like working with a whole family because you really get to see some of the greatest strengths that a family has, how they fill in for each other and what they pull from each other. And I think for some providers, it can be a little overwhelming to have like a whole family in the room. Um, of course it is, the whole situation's overwhelming. But I also think at the same time, even though it can be overwhelming and difficult, parents can be something essential in driving the treatment to a better place. It, it's hard because I've, I've presented at like the Texas Adolescent Young Adult Oncology Conference and that's one of the topics to come up, like how do we deal with difficult parents, right? And I think the first step is like realize why they're having a hard time. I think it's easy enough to react to anger, but anger often, not always, but often is a strong front for sadness or fear, right? And so... If we can see sadness or fear underneath the anger, sometimes that's a little bit, um, we are, we are kinder to sadness and fear than we are to anger. Like you said, there's a broad, the adolescent and young adult is a broad age range. And so for some people in that group, uh, it might be parents and others that might be partners or friends that, you know, is that family unit. That's a big deal. Obviously if you're, you know, 25 or 35, you're not, you know, concerned about your parents, <laughs> like, and how they're helping you work through your sexuality issues. But, you know, yeah, but, but that's, but, a, that's a good point. Like, I mean, if I was working with a 25 year old, even if there's no one else in the room with them, I would want to know what their support system looks like. Because that support system can be, it can be vital with mental health, right? It can be and, and we do know that if your mental health is suffering, then your treatments, your body might not accept the treatments as well, right? And so part of like healthy mental health is having a really good support system, whether that's um, biological family or chosen family or friends or a spiritual community, whatever that means, it's really important to have that. When Dr. Boatman got the responses back from her panel of providers, three themes emerged. First, what are the patient characteristics that are important in determining exactly what are appropriate sexual health conversations for each individual? Because that's going to be different for every person. Second, what is the provider's knowledge and awareness about sexual health issues? And third, what are the sexual health topics that providers should be addressing? If you would talk a little bit about those three themes and and how um, this information within your within your research can be helpful to the patients and the providers. Sure. So let me let me kind of first talk a little bit about the design of the research so it makes sense where the themes come from. So the research was a Delphi method, which, which basically in simplified terms means, um, you get a bunch of quote unquote experts together and you ask them the same question or questions and you see what they come up with. Um, and what they come up with is often pretty good or pretty, pretty close to what it actually is. Um, and so that's what I did. So I got a bunch of 
people who work in this field, so um, oncologists, pediatric hematologists, oncologists, nurse practitioners, social workers, child life specialists, and I asked them um, the question of basically what what is what should we be telling these patients? How do we have these conversations, and how is it different from like a fifteen year old versus a twenty eight year old? Um, and what we came up with is three different groups. So the first one was um, how do you determine what is developmentally appropriate? Like what kind of things are you looking for or what does quote unquote developmentally appropriate mean? Um, And then what does the provider need to understand to give developmentally appropriate information? And then what sort of information or assessments should be given. What is the information that's important for patients to get from their provider around their sexuality and how it's being affected by the treatments and everything in, 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 in these three categories, biology, psychology, and social? So this is essentially one of kind of the bigger bulkier parts of the research that I did. But I also think it's a really important part because this is where I can provide actual like guidelines, right? This and this, you need to say this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Because it's really, it's, it's hard to, you know, tell a medical provider, well, you need to be providing information about sexual health. Well, like what? Because that's a big topic. It is. It's a really big topic. And so when I asked the people on my panel, um, what should be given to these patients? What do they need to know? Um, or what does a medical provider need to be providing in terms of sexual health? They came up with a really good list of stuff. Um, the first one was um, assessments need to be done. Like you need to make sure... Um, you ask about current sexual activity and do like understand their sexual history and their gender identity and sexual orientation. So that first section is the assessments that need to be done. And then the second section is um, the type of education that they need. So even things like cancer specific risks of STIs, so sexually transmitted infections, because you, if, if you just had treatment and you have unprotected sex, your body is in an immunocompromised state and STIs um, can be contracted a little bit easier and and do more damage essentially. And these are really important like health conversations that need to be had. And it's, you know, you can have this conversation once, but it needs to be done throughout uh, the cancer treatment journey. Um, because sometimes when you're in a doctor's office, you you don't hear everything, right? You're, and you don't get all the information. So it's not just a one and done conversation. It's stuff that kind of needs to happen throughout. Um, the next thing is providers should be giving information about prognosis. So, you know, w- what could potentially happen and how can cancer treatments potentially affect my sexual health in the future? So things like fertility, of course, um, it can affect intimate relationships, sexual pain, 
your desire, your emotional health, your body image, and having discussions about prognosis. And then the last two is um, providing referrals to like a couples counselor or fertility counseling. Um, And then the last one is basically what kind of reading material or pamphlets should they have there so if the patients want future information, they can have them. And this is all right, just line by line detailed out. And this was the information that I got from talking to the panel about what information do these patients need? What should providers be giving these patients? And it really does answer that question. I do think that there's a couple of things missing from that list, but it's a pretty exhaustive list. I was interested to see that one of the things that you said that was missing was uh, a, a referral to pelvic floor specialist. Um, I don't know if you'd heard it, but we had a, an episode a while back about, uh, I interviewed a, a doctor of physical therapy who specialized in pelvic floor health. And it was just a really a mind blowing episode to me because you just don't realize how important that is. So, yeah. So wh- why specifically in this group of people is the pelvic floor health referral important? Well, it's there's evidence to show that pelvic physical therapy can be really helpful um, with people who are cancer survivors, particularly uh, prostate cancer, gynecological cancers, um, and and we think genital cancers, but it's not just that either. So something like breast cancer, if you are on um, uh, estrogen suppression medications, it's going to have an impact on let's say like the vaginal lining, right? And so pelvic physical therapy can be really helpful with things like that. Um, and, and it is in the guidelines on evidence-based ways of treating sexual health issues in pa- cancer patients. So I was surprised that the experts that I interviewed didn't bring this up because it, it's in the guidelines, right? It's in there, but nobody brought it up. Um, I was surprised. And then yet again, whenever I have seen survivors in my practice and they're talking about uh, sexual pain issues or functioning issues in their pelvis or genital region, um, I, I always, well, you know, have you been referred to a pelvic physical therapist? And most of the time they haven't. Um, and that, I, that still surprises me because I'm like, this, this is evidence-based. Like it's in the research. It's here. That should be an immediate like referral. Um, and it's interesting to me. And I, I do want to say this. It kind of sounds like I'm talking a lot of smack about medical providers. And I don't want that to be the case at all. Okay. I, they are amazing. And the majority of them doing awesome work and great work. And like I said, it is just so much information to know. And that's why having a collaborative working care team can be really, really important because not one person can't know all this information, right? Um, but I will say that some of the patients that I've seen, and maybe it's because they have are so far in their cancer journey, and when, once they've gotten to me, they've gone through a lot of people, right, likely. Um, I had someone a few months ago that said, why, why has nobody brought this up? Why has nobody brought pelvic physical therapy up? Because my last doctor brought up surgery, but they didn't bring up pelvic physical therapy. 
And when you're thinking about um, functioning issues and even treatment issues, you should you should start off with the lowest risk. And physical therapy is much less risky than surgery, right? And so that should always be an option before surgery is is brought up to when we're talking about particularly like sexual functioning issues. Why is it important for the specific need, needs of the LGBTQ and queer community to be addressed in the context of healthcare? And how do your findings address this? That's a good question. I don't really think my findings address it very well. Um, but let me go back to your first question is, is why is it important? So there are um, some major health disparities for the LGBT plus community. And I'm going to, I'm going to use the word queer if that's okay. So like I said before, I identify in the queer community. And um, so I'm going to use that. So it, there are some major health disparities. So things like, um, of course, there is uh, certain biases in the population, um, like the medical community can be biased whether they mean to or not, right? In providing care, there are um, higher rates of mental health issues in the queer community because of the way that society treats us, right? Um, and so whenever there's a health disparity, meaning like the, the healthcare that they get isn't as great as the heterosexual community, essentially. Whenever there's a health disparity, it's really important to see what we can do about that and see if we can fix it. And I actually think it's really important in the adolescent and young adult population because that's when a lot of people are beginning to kind of explore um, their gender identity. And of course it happens younger than that. And of course it happens older than that, but there is a lot of psychosexual development that happens in gender identity, sexual orientation, how we want to present ourselves to the world, um, how we want to feel and who we want to be in this world and who, who we feel like we are. Those are huge questions, right? Um, that we continue to explore, but for a lot of people, it begins to get really, um, like a light, a light shines on that part of you when you hit adolescence and you begin to see it a little more like, huh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Let's pay a little more attention to that. And like I said, not everyone, right? Um, and so, and there's more and more young people because there's more acceptance for being in the queer community, there's more and more young people who are brave and coming out and being more than um, identifying more than just cisgender or heterosexual, but being in a place somewhere in between or non-binary. And medical providers not only need to say, yeah, I, you know, thank you for telling me, but like, thank you for telling me and I see you and I hear you and how can I be here for you? Right. Um, so my research, I, that came up, sexual orientation, gender identity, those two in particular came up as important to ask about and important to recognize. However, it was the only thing that not all the providers agreed on. 
Um, all the other questions, you know, it was like on a Likert scale. Do you like totally disagree and agree? And the questions about sexual identity and gender identity were the only ones that didn't have total agreement. And so I would like to be able to go back and ask those people, let's explore this more. Why isn't there agreement? Because I don't know if, um, if there is an agreement because they're thinking this isn't important or I don't, or maybe there is an agreement that's saying like, well, the, of course this is important, but you shouldn't treat them differently because of this. Right. And, and so it's hard because I didn't have the ability to ask follow-up questions. There's a lot that I feel like is missing. Well, of, of course that's the way that research goes. Uh, it's the whole point of research is to find the missing information. Like- and then you find that there's just more missing. <laughs> right. I, I also, I will say that um, the biggest bias in my research is identifying the quote unquote experts as the people who are providing the care. And who I really think the experts are, are the people that are living the story, right? The survivors and the families And so I would like to ask the same questions to them. Do you think you'll do that? Yeah. If I, if I, um, am given the time and the opportunity to do so, I will. I will look forward to reading that. I really (laughs) will. I really will. I want to ask, like if people, if someone listens to this and, and they want more information or they want their provider to get some more information, can they reach out to you through your website? Yeah. I, I want to help. I want people to get this information. Um, and, and you don't have to be an adolescent or young adult. You don't have to fall into the age range of 15 to 39. Um, there are lots of people. I mean, most cancer diagnoses happen over the age of 40 anyways, right? Um, and so... If this is something that is coming up and um, they're welcome to email me and I I can send them all the resources that I have or ask, answer any other questions. There's a lot of questions that I don't know Um, and I don't mind saying I don't know, but I could probably um, point people in the right direction. So Dr. Boatman, I want to express my gratitude uh, for you being here and taking the time to talk with me today. I, I feel like with every guest and, and, um, and for you certainly in the work that you're doing, I have learned so much and your work has inspired me. And so I want to tell you, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I am more than happy, um, to sit and talk with you. And I just really appreciate you inviting me to speak about this. According to a CBS poll from several years ago, cancer has touched 54% of people in the U.S. That means they or someone they love has been through cancer diagnosis and treatment. Now the thing is, COVID has caused many folks, and I'll confess, including me, to put off regular cancer screenings. So if you have, go ahead and call your doctor and make that appointment. You don't want to put this off anymore. Do it today. Anyway, 
you can go to www.cdc.gov backslash cancer for more information if you don't believe me. So I'm dedicating this to one of my delightful friends who I will call Diana because she is a badass, brassy, sexy goddess who absolutely refuses to be slut-shamed. And I love her very much for that. So she was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago and went through some intense treatment. One day we were talking about where she was and her experiences, and, and she shared how all of this was affecting her connection to her body. And I'm going to share her words here because they are so vulnerable and profound. And there's a lot here that I can relate to, and I, and I think many others will too. I want to tell you when you asked me about how I felt sexually, I don't feel sexual because I don't feel pretty. For me, sexuality is being in love with yourself. That includes being desirable, right down to the smell of my body, my thoughts, my actions, how I walk. I miss how graceful I was. I took that for granted. I miss having my chakras aligned and the power surge that brings through orgasm. Like I said, there's a lot here to unpack and a lot I can relate to. Everything from understanding the concept of feeling pretty to being in love with yourself. Like Diana, I've grieved the loss of a body that used to feel graceful and strong, but our bodies are constantly changing. And when illness strikes, that change can be rapid and profound. And for me, this has been an ongoing lesson in accepting my body as it is in any given moment trying to let go of expectations of what is go what's going to feel good to me or nurture me and my body at any given time. And it's an ongoing process. So I look forward to some deeper conversations about this in our Q&A on the 20th. We all have different experiences and perspectives and sharing with each other and learning from one another is the way to go. Dr. Boatman and I will talk in more detail about how patients can maintain healthy sensual or sexual connections during and after cancer treatment or during any kind of illness or even chronic illness. And you can ask her any questions that came up for you. You can find a link to this Zoom session by joining our community at joyfulsexed.com or email me at joyfulsexed at gmail.com to request a link. I hope to see you on the 20th, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Now, there was so much important information in this interview that I could not cut anything out. So I created a two-part series on this topic. Be sure to check out both sections and please pass the link on to anyone that you think might benefit from listening.